0: Hello, Revelers. So, this is a long one, and this intro will therefore be very short. Just a couple of quick things to get you in the right frame of mind. First of all, if you are listening to these podcasts in sequential order, you know at the end of the last episode, I said that the next guest will be a visionary. Well, that person, Rome Vajaro, is going to come up later in February instead. So, today we've got Jenny Davis Rail who is an advocate for children, particularly special education type children, so that they get what they need to get a good quality education and experience. So without further ado, here is Jenny Davis-Rail. Well, hello, Revelers. Today on Revel Revel, I've got my dear friend, Jenny Davis-Rail, who I do know from Mount Carmel, I'll just go out and say that right now. Hey, Jenny, how are you?
1: I'm great, Lauren. How are you?
0: I am okay. And obviously I've let the cat out of the bag, another Mount Carmel person. But (laughs) what do you remember about how we met? Anything?
1: Gosh, you know, Lauren, I think I've said this to you before that I honestly don't remember how we met because when I think back, I just always think of you being there. I can't honestly remember a time when you weren't there, you know, obviously the connection would be to class council, Mr. Factor, ASB, somewhere along those lines, but an initial introduction or an additional meeting, I don't remember. You're just, you're always there and you're always in my memories.
0: Oh, so what I remember, yeah, working together on the senior class council, that's permanently etched in my mind. Like I can't picture senior class council without picturing you. So what, what was young Jenny like before I met her?
1: <laughs> probably not much different than I am now, you know, kind of wild, kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, what was it? One of my cousins said one time I was, my sister was the shy, quiet one and I was the loose cannon. I think mm. is how I was described. <laughs> I think that probably still is true to form today. Um, I'm probably the wild one with no filter.
0: And so when you went off to college, I think you went to UC Riverside, right?
1: No, I went to, well, you know, my whole life I had always wanted to be, which I don't even know if I even knew the term at that time. I just always wanted to be what I now know as a neonatologist, somebody who worked with really young babies or even a pediatrician. That was kind of always my goal. And when I got to high school, I realized, you know, I really just didn't have, I didn't feel like I had the study skills to go through medical school. And okay. I think that was junior or senior year when I started realizing, you know, do I really have what it takes to make it through medical school? And, you know, somebody, one of our classmates said to, a, said to me, well, then you don't want it bad enough. And in my field now, I think back and I think, you know, part of probably what my struggle was, is undiagnosed ADHD. And, you know, I, I've kind of fallen into this little realm of dyslexia that I start wondering if I didn't have some mild learning disabilities. You know, my mom would always tell me things like, you know, teachers always say you're really smart, but you either get A's or F's. A's when you do the work and F's when you don't do the work. But I don't think, especially back in those days, nobody ever really listened to why a kid might be struggling to get that work in. And I think it is what fuels my passion now, advocating for kids. And I've never been diagnosed. It's more of a self-diagnosis, but it's what I do. (laughs) So I can check off the box. And you know, I don't know that I really need a formal diagnosis. Having been in the special ed field for so long, I've just learned how to accommodate things. And it's still something I struggle with. I mean, I have no filter. (laughs) You know, (laughs) my mom always used to say your mouth will get you in trouble someday. And now I joke that my mouth is making me money because my no filter is you know, how I advocate for kids. I will speak up and say something.
0: Well, cool. But, you know, charting that path of how you got to where you are, obviously there's surprises, twists and turns and all that stuff that we like to focus on, on Revel Revel about the serendipitous or kismet, the things you couldn't have foreseen. So, so don't jump. (laughs) You were at this, you're at this point where you're like, wait a minute, am I, do I really want it enough? Do I have what it takes? And then what happens?
1: You know, and really, I think that is what has struck me about your theme and listening to some of the other podcasts that I didn't even realize, but it was that taking a step back and kind of looking at everything of like, wow, my life really has been a path of serendipitous changes on my path. Started out with the dream of being a pediatrician or neonatologist, and then Thought, okay, I probably don't have the skills for that. What else could I do that still follows that same passion? And that's when I decided to go into nursing and ended up going to college. And I always joke because I ended up, you know, we had a high school of what? 32, 3,400 kids, a right. big the high whole, school. The whole. I mean, school. We, yeah. had a, we had a graduating class of, I think the biggest number we've seen is almost a thousand. Yep. And so what do I do? I end up going to an all-girls Catholic college for nursing school. Oh my. <laughs> Which is the farthest thing from me. I mean, by my senior year of high school, I was not really following my Catholic religion anymore. I had my own conflicts with that. I'm certainly not an all-girls school. But you know what? I'll, I'll be really honest with you. I grew up watching Facts of Life. And I think <laughs> somewhere in my head, I had this fantasy that an all-girls Catholic school was going to be like Facts of Life. I love and it. And it. it so was not that at all. In some ways, it was a lot darker. You have a lot of girls who have grown up in all-girls Catholic schools, and they've grown up in these really really sheltered environments and then they get to college where there's no parents and no restraints and no oversight and holy heck these girls were wild (laughs) it was kind of crazy and some of these girls were so sheltered that you know things would happen. You're like, really? How did you not know that? I mean, for example, we had a girl on our floor that got pregnant because nobody told her you can get pregnant from the pullout method. Oh my! And it's like, how did you not know that? I learned that in sixth grade sex ed. Like, you know, to me that was something so basic. Yeah. And here she's a freshman in college and doesn't know that and finds out in the the worst way possible. So, you know, but. It was too small. I had way too many people that knew my business before I did, and I really didn't like it. Mm. And so
0: I have to find out why you went there. But first, let's focus on the facts of life. (laughs) I mean, come on. One of the greatest TV shows ever. Now, who were you? What character did you most identify with? Not who you wanted to be, but who you knew you were.
1: You know, I probably always identified with Joe because I was just kind of that tough. I grew up the first year I played soccer when I was in 3rd grade, that was before we moved to San Diego. My first year I played soccer, I was the only girl on my team. Oh, wow. You know, I was a total tomboy. I had more boyfriends than girlfriends. So I think I always identified the most with Joe. Or there was the one, I think her name was Cindy. I think the original the, the oh. first year I played softball. Uh, there was a blonde girl that always had pigtails. Oh, it, I think it was softball.
0: Tall, thin blonde Cindy. Yeah,
1: yeah it was softball because I was playing softball in my younger years and I love softball.
0: So what the heck made you choose a small Catholic all-girls school when that's so not you?
1: You know what? Honestly, it came down to uh, the options of nursing programs, There were not a whole lot of options for nursing programs in California. I really didn't want to go that far away. I wanted to go away, but not that far away. It boiled down to Sonoma State and Mount St. Mary's as options. And Sonoma State, when it came down to it, was just too far away. You know, the campus is actually used in a lot of movies in a backdrop, which kind of had stars in my eyes my first semester there, they filmed a movie on campus, a movie with Robert Downey Jr.
0: Do you remember which one? What's the
1: name yeah, of Less Than Zero. Oh, that was
0: okay. I have seen uh-huh. it for school then. Yeah.
1: So the opening scene, the opening scene where it's graduation, mm-hmm. they filmed that at our campus. And it just so happened to be a day my friends and I had no class. So we sat and watched the entire day. And he was the nicest guy. He hung out with us. He talked to us, which I laugh now. Like he even invited us to some party down in Santa Monica, which we thought... Like, we're not going to a party with this guy. He's too big for us. Now I'm thinking, wow, now what we know about him, that could have been one hell of a party to go to. Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. But yeah. So I did one year there, but you know, by spring I started realizing this is just not for me. So then I ended up and you know, here's the, the, the funny pathway have to mention this. So how I came to decide nursing wasn't for me. I think the wake up call for me that I never thought about, all I thought about was wanting to work with babies. And I never took into account what you had to do to get there. And that you have to go through all these rotations in nursing of all the specialties. Before you get into one that you like, I thought I could just go straight there. And the wake up call for me was one of my friends who was a second year nursing student came home from her clinicals, just horrified because she had to put an external catheter on a guy that was our same age. And as she was putting it on him, he got hard. And you know, here I'm 18. I'm still a virgin. And I was mortified. I could not stand the thought of having to do that. I was too immature. Wow. And I went, oh, this may not be for me yet. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what I'm like, okay, what else can I do? And I changed my major to psychology because Senior year of high school, I took psychology with Miss Rhodes and I loved it. I loved her. And so that was my backup. And I thought, okay, I can still work with kids and do developmental psychology. And so started looking at programs and was looking at Long Beach because I still didn't want to come home and started looking at Long Beach. And then Holly and I start talking. She's like, hey, I'm going to Cal State Northridge. Why don't you come with me and we can be roommates? So I'm like, fine. To me, a psychology program was a psychology program. It never occurred to me that one school may have a different emphasis than the other. Right. So, you know, off I went, Holly and I and her, at that time, boyfriend, Greg, who later became her husband, the three of us went off to Cal State Northridge together. So I was at Northridge for three years. And after four years in L.A., Holly and I both, we were just done. We couldn't do another day. I was only three classes away from graduating and we couldn't do it. And part of Holly's motivation for coming home was her mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer. That spurred her wanting to come home. And I wanted to be home with her as well to help her through that. So we just kind of all decided it was our time. Fast forward. A year later, the Northridge earthquake, the big apartment complex that collapsed was directly across the street from the apartment we lived in. So I was thinking some strange ways it saved us from that as well. So I came home and did my last year. Oh, but you know what? Actually, even before that, while I was at Northridge, another one of those like life's twists and turns you know, I was getting into where I had taken all my undergrad classes, was needing my upper division units, couldn't get all the classes I wanted. I needed like three more units so I could have enough units to stay on my insurance. So I took this art for early childhood class. It was, you know, it's just going to be a filler. Oh, that's a fun, easy class. Well, it had a lab component to it. And I the second day of class I got the time mixed up and showed up to my art class a half an hour late. And I walked in and they were finger painting on the tables. She the teacher was doing this whole story about frogs but tied it into an art lesson of mixing colors and they were using their hands to pretend like they were frogs. And I stood in the doorway and I just went, oh, my God, this is what I was meant to do.
0: Wow. Let, let's kind of dissect that. What's the name of this class again?
1: It was Art for Early Childhood. And you're not even doing it. You just walk in and see what's no. happening. And I just saw it. what was happening. You know, I come from a family of teachers. My mom was a teacher, which is probably why I never even considered teaching teaching as a profession, because I was for sure not going to do what my mom did, because we had a contentious relationship. But yeah, it was just in that moment, I wasn't even doing it. It was just seeing it and seeing that engagement and that activity. It wasn't even about the painting. It was just the experience where I stood in the doorway and I just went, wow, this is what I was meant to do.
0: And it was, you just knew it. You're just gut. I just knew yeah, it.
1: right then and there I knew. And that day changed my whole path. And I think that's part of what led to us moving home. I forgot all about that. So I started looking at what programs would kind of meet my path and where I wanted to go. And San Diego State had a, you could choose an emphasis. So I chose an emphasis in developmental psychology. So that is my background. So I had to come home and I only had three classes away from graduation, but I had to come home and do a full 30 units in residence to be able to graduate from San Diego State. But it set me on a path to getting a teaching credential. So I got my teaching credential in 93. And there were a lot of layoffs happening in education at that time. So I went into this credential program, I was the very first cohort at San Diego State to be eligible for a certificate called CLAD and it was the cross cultural language academic development. So it was the beginning of acknowledging second language learners need a different approach to instruction. So again, just like I ended up in teaching. And I remember it so distinctly. It was a Thursday afternoon and Friday was Veterans Day. I went to San Diego State to find out what classes I have to take to clear my clad. And as I'm walking across this huge campus, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, you know, Someday I would like to go into special education after I've done my regular ed for a while. Maybe I'd like to diversify and go into special education. I'm just going to pop by their office and see what that entails. Because to get into the regular credential program, there were some prerequisites I had to do. And I thought, well, if I'm taking classes, maybe I can throw in a prerequisite here and there, right. I walk into the office at four four thirty on a Thursday afternoon before a three day weekend, and she says, "Oh, we have an intern program starting up for special education, and if you get your application in by Monday, you can still be considered." And I went, "Oh, wait a minute!" And I didn't even know—I really didn't even know what all that entailed, what it would involve. But it was so much more appealing to me than the second language stuff. And in a weekend, I did a complete about face with my career path and got and the appealing thing was, is it was a way to get my foot in the door when there were no jobs available, especially for average white female, because they were really trying to recruit minorities into education, which to this day is still a struggle and a problem teaching is still predominantly white women yeah. unfortunately you know they try all the time to diversify and it just for you know it just never happens and so i find myself in this this program, we'll see. I, I got my first credential at the height of whole language, which kind of parlays into where I am now. And, you know, again, I just never connected with the whole philosophy of whole language. And and it wasn't just me. Everybody in our cohort we kept asking our professors, okay, you're teaching us all this fluff, but how do we teach a kid to read? And I came from You know, my early years of being in Catholic school, being taught to read in a really heavy duty phonics program. So to be told phonics is a bad thing, I would argue with my professor saying, but why is it so bad? And nobody could tell me why. They would just tell me why you had to focus on this other stuff. And I remember somebody telling me, well, we don't know how people learn to read. We just do it. Hmm. And what I now know is right about that same time, there was really intense research going on into how kids learn how to read. And it started in 1987. There was a grant to study this and so we now have evidence on how people learn how to read and where it's affected in the brain they have brain mapping of it and mri scams to show differences in brains of uh i don't even want to say typical versus atypical but for somebody with dyslexia how their brain is slightly different from another reader's brain you know that projects later on into my life and and to where I am now. But I I came out of that first credential program feeling really unprepared. So when they made this offer of an intern program where I'm going to be getting a second credential, learning to teach, but I have a whole lot of people supporting me along the way. It was so much more appealing. And funny twist of fate, trying to get it, you know, getting a placement for this intern program, I was going to be going away to a wedding in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, that Memorial Day weekend. And I hadn't been placed at a school yet. So I was debating, do I go, do I not? Because I was scheduled to leave the same day that school started, that teachers reported back. And You know, one of the advisors said to me, well, you know, they can always opt to interview you over the phone. I'm like, "Okay, so so here I am in front of a bar on this really busy highway in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, checking my messages. And lo and behold, there's a message message from a principal. Saying, you know, do you want to accept this sight unseen? And he was a quirky guy. I'll never forget his message. It said, you know, oh, kind of like when my grandma married my grandfather, you know, sight unseen. So I call him. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am, in a job interview. And I was so eager. I'm like, sure, I'll take the job. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had never stepped foot into a classroom like this. So I show up 7.30 the first morning of school and I see all this positioning equipment and my stomach sank. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? And can I do this?
0: Jenny, what does what positioning equipment mean?
1: Oh, so like for kids who are in wheelchairs or aren't able to walk yet, you have different equipment to get them so that they can bear weight on their bones and muscles to keep them strong, and healthy. It also helps to reduce pressure sores from being in a wheelchair too long. But basically, when you see it, if you don't know what it is, it looks really archaic and frightening. Yeah, I can imagine. Because, you know, think, I mean, this is a really terrible example, but I think it's one that everybody knows. Think of that scene in Silence of the Lambs, where they have Hannibal Lecter strapped to a board. Oh, yeah. That's basically what it is. You know, you have boards. Nowadays, Would at 25, almost 30 years later, they look a lot better than they did back in those days. Pretty disturbing if you've never seen anything like that before. And it's funny because after that first day, I never gave it a second thought. And I absolutely... Felt in love with what I was doing. You know, I went into it thinking it would be a foot in the door to get into a job. And, you know, nobody stays in special ed for more than five years. The burnout rate in special ed is incredibly high. And I lasted almost 25 years in it. I refused to be one of those that burned out, but I loved it. I loved the kids that I worked with. You know, we had for several years, we had a tyrant of a superintendent where gen ed teachers were just under the gun, but they left us alone and I loved it. I could do my own thing and it was all good. And I loved my kids, you know, so much. It's a very different perspective than the regular ed world with the kids that I worked with. We got to celebrate every little success. And when I say every little success that could be something as simple as the kid peed on the toilet, right? You know, I mean, it's like the craziest little things, but we got to celebrate all of those little things. And I remember my second year of teaching, one of my students went to spend some time in a gen ed class. And, you know, when I would say to the teacher, how, how's it going? Well, you know, because he was still comparing her to all the other kids in the class And in the gen ed world, and this got even worse with the advent of No Child Left Untested, it became looking only at deficits, never looking at strengths and progress. And I loved what I did because I could focus on more positives. And so that kept me in it for a long time. You know, there are certain things that stuck with me through the years that I look back that I had no idea then how much it would influence what I'm doing now. But, you know, you encounter certain kids in your career that stick with you. And one of them in particular was named Benny. And Benny came to me at a time in my career where I had a class of kids that everybody in my class was technically determined to be intellectually disabled which in those days is what we used to call mental retardation. And I only use that word because it's a term everybody understands. When I say intellectual disabilities, people don't really understand what that is. And we don't use that term mental retardation anymore. It's not a flattering term because it comes with so many limitations and ugly connotations. But I get this kid in my class and his paperwork said he had, if I remember correctly, an IQ in the 50s, like 58. And back in those days, I was not that good at interpreting test results because I was not really trained to interpret test results because the population I worked with didn't really perform well in standardized tests. So my training was more informal assessment and data collection. So Benny comes to me with this really low IQ, and then you meet him and you go, wow, this kid's got a lot more on the ball than what his paperwork says. And the first day it rains, he explains the water cycle to me. And I went, you know, you've got a lot more going on than what your test scores show. And I struggled so hard to teach him to learn how to read using all the skills I was taught in school. And I tried everything. And I even went to my resource specialist at the time and I said, help me out. Like, I know this kid is bright and I feel like somewhere out there, there is a key floating around that's going to be the answer to everything. I just don't even know what it is to ask for. And she went, huh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But it always haunted me. I always felt like I somehow failed that kid. And, you know, those things just kind of sit in the back of your memory and every once in a while it comes up. And then fast forward, I think it was about 12 years ago, I was pregnant with Piper. I was working with another resource specialist And he had a parent, you know, and they always label the parents as the crazy parent. And this parent was really pushing him to diagnose her daughter with dyslexia. And it was, oh, she's crazy. And I remember him saying to me, well, we don't diagnose dyslexia. And I remember saying, but why? It's a learning disability. And he says, oh, no, it's a medical diagnosis. And and we don't address that. And, you know, that was not the area that that was not the population that I worked with. But again, it's one of those things that sat back in my memory banks thinking something about that didn't feel good and it didn't feel right. And so, you know, fast forward through the years, you know, education has really evolved and it's really not, it was not my passion anymore. The way it's become too much about testing. You know, I would walk out of staff meetings, walking back to my classroom thinking, I miss the days when we actually talked about kids in a staff meeting and talked about instruction and instructional techniques. And instead, our staff meetings became about analyzing data. And I don't want to talk about data. I want to talk about children. I went into this job to work with children, not data. If I wanted to go into a field with data, I would have done that. And I was really starting to have conflicts with my career. And I just... I felt like the profession as a whole was losing that focus on children. And I think it was my last two years of teaching. I was, you know, venting to Nate at home. I was venting about schedules. And he said to me, all I hear you talk about anymore is schedules. Do you not teach children anymore? Mm. And I said, you know, that's kind of how it feels. And, you know, just a series of things of, you know, then having somebody who later became a director of our programs say to me something that was in complete contrast to what the law is. And I think it was at that very moment where I, you know, when she responded to me and I went, whoa, okay, you're in charge. You don't know the basic premise of the law that guides my job. And I've been in this job way too much to keep my mouth shut and bite my tongue. I need to rethink my future. But you know, when you're a teacher, you don't leave, (laughs) leaving teaching. And I'm probably going to ruffle feathers when I say this, but, and I, I believe it in even more firmly now being out of it for five years, leaving teaching is like leaving a cult. And when you tell people you're thinking of leaving, it's, well, you can't leave. What about the benefits? What about your retirement? Well, you know, I'm in my early 40s. I'm nowhere near thinking about retirement. And really, I've got as many years to put in to retire as I've already done. And I was really for a few years at conflict. Then you also think And I remember exactly walking. I was so miserable in my job. I was working for a tyrant of a principal who I now know defines the term gaslighting. I had never heard gaslighting at that point. But when I look at the definition, it fits my old principal to a T. They start making you think you're incapable and crazy. And I remember walking from my car to my classroom and I was just so sad thinking I had lost that passion. Oh, I'm going to cry. I had lost that love and passion for the job, not the kids, but the passion for the job. But then I would think to myself, who's going to take a teacher of 17 years? You know, you feel like that abused wife, like who wants me? And I love that you mentioned Remy because she was one of the ones that helped me see that there is light Beyond teaching, oh, I'm gonna cry. And, you know, she was really one of the impetus for change for me to see there was possibility beyond teaching. But again, to bring yourself to that point where you say, I quit is really hard because you're walking away from the children that you love. And your passion for going into the job is the children. But what makes you leave is not the children. <laughs> Right, right. So it was a series of, it was a series of tragedies, really, that was the wake up call for me. And it was a series of tragedies in a short period of time. It started on a Sunday with uh, Nate being hit by a drunk driver. And almost, I mean, the only reason he survived is he was in our suburban, any other car he would not survive. He went head first into the center divider. And hit it so hard, it pushed him on top of the divider. And he remembers skidding along the divider. There was still that much momentum. Oh, wow. And then he went face first onto the other side of the freeway, which thank God, because when you look at that spot, he was only about 100 yards from a break in that center median where it went down below. Oh, okay. And so had he been, had he hit that center median 100 yards earlier, he wouldn't have nosedived onto the other side. He would have gone down into the lagoon down there. wow. So that was on a Sunday. And then two days later, I don't want to go into a lot of detail about this, but I, I witnessed a death that nobody should ever have to experience as a parent or witness. And that was a big wake up call. Even more so than Nate's accident. Because Nate walked away from his accident. I mean, physically sore and emotionally shaken up. But in comparison to two days later, he was okay. But that incident was a wake-up call on how one minute you can be talking to somebody, eating pizza, and five minutes later, everybody's life changes. And it was a big wake-up call. And, you know, I... One of our classmates that I had reached out to with some questions on Nate's accident said to me, you know, I've seen you now go through these two things and I've never seen you cry or shed a tear. And really through all that, I didn't because I think I went into that mode of taking care of everybody else. And I think that comes from being an adult child of an alcoholic where you've got to take care of yourself and your younger sibling and you have to survive because you know your mom's passed out and not making you breakfast before you get to school and you've got to do that all on your own. And even as the tragedy was unfolding and I would see other parents standing around and crying, I would think to myself, what the hell are you doing standing there and crying? Do something. And I, my school counselor said to me, well, your training just kicked in. And I said to her, what training? Nobody trains you for this. And she's like, Jenny, <laughs> you know, you're a teacher. You do disaster training. You do fire drills. Your first aid in CPR. I'm like, oh, I guess I am. And, you know, my body just went into that automatic take care of business. And it was something that happened at a class party. And the teacher was a dear friend of mine. And... You know, we all kind of suffered and my job was so miserable and I I had finally gone to the union to try and get out of it and they were absolutely useless. So when people point fingers at the unions, don't think the unions really protect teachers as much as you want to think they are. You know, they couldn't help me. But over that summer, I had Tiffany reached out to me. And said, Hey, you know, we're looking for somebody dual credentialed. And she wasn't even asking me, more just, did I know anybody? And I went, Wait a minute, maybe this is what I need. And, you know, there's a risk when you leave one teaching job to go into another because you lose all your seniority mm-hmm. and you start all over. And for some districts, that also means you take a big hit on the pay scale. But, you know, I just thought life has taught me that there's no guarantees and life can change in the blink of an eye. And I just have to go with it, you know, because teachers do not get paid over the summer. Contrary to popular belief, it's not just a free vacation by quitting. I had to pay back a bunch of that money, but you know, halfway through the year, the job that I was told I was being hired for turned out to be so much more. And I would, I was not getting the support I should have gotten. And basically the job was physically killing me. My blood pressure was up to 145. And that spring, the teacher whose class we had been in at that party, who was a dear, dear friend of mine. She had both of my kids in class. She was diagnosed. Well, she went in thinking she just had a cough or bronchitis. Then they thought it was pneumonia. And after three months... On life support, we found out it was stage four melanoma. And I got the call on my way home from work with a diagnosis that she had stage four melanoma. She's 36 years old. And here she went to urgent care with a cough, and they sent her straight to the hospital. Her husband never took her boys to visit her at the hospital. So she may never see her boys again. And I cried the whole way home at the thought of something like that happening and never seeing my kids again. And I couldn't stand that thought. And I came home that day and I just said, I'm done. I I can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. And then it's, but what do I do? (laughs) Because what do you do when you've been a teacher for 21 years?
0: Well, before we launch into that phase, can we go back just a little bit? Yeah you covered a lot of ground really quickly. And there's no way I can go back through all that. So I'm just going to pick a couple of things that I really want to make sure we get some closure on. So it sounds like that you, because when I think of you, I think you have such a heart for kids with special needs. And so it sounds like that you ended up in special ed sort of by accident. It wasn't because you already had the heart for special needs kids? Or did I mishear you?
1: You know, I think I did. It was always something an interest of mine. And, you know, growing up, I had a cousin who is also my godfather, who when he was 18, was in a car accident drag racing. So I grew up with a family member in a wheelchair. So unlike some people, it wasn't Foreign to me, it wasn't scary to me. So it was always something that was an interest. But you know, Lauren, if you think back, special ed law only it only came into law in 1974. So if you think back into our high school years, the law had only been in effect for 10 years. And it takes a while when there is a federal law it takes several years for it to trickle down and really impact the schools on the ground but again having been in it it definitely makes me think back to friends in our life and situations in our life that i think oh my gosh and one of one of our friends i've had this discussion with him quite a few times about what it looked like then and what it looked like now and where he is now and would it be different? And I know he's it's so funny. He's been mentioned in other podcasts before, but Gene, you know, I, Gene and I have had this conversation and he's really open with me. And, and I think because of what I'm doing now, he and I have a different connection in that role of, you know, he grew up with dyslexia, but he grew up at a time where the supports and services were so much different than they are now good, bad, and otherwise. And I think there's pluses to it and minuses to it. But as far as, you know, did I always have a heart for it? I think I did, but I just didn't know it. Okay. And and here's the irony of it though. It was always something that interests me that I wanted to go into later. And I always thought, oh, I'll do a few years in general ed and then I'll go teach special ed. That was my plan. But in reality, nobody does that. Rarely mm. does anybody ever do that. Usually it's the other way around. People spend their time in specialist and out and they go to Janet. And it's it has become increasingly different than it used to be where, you know, it used to be a lot more even between the two and people would go back and forth between the two. And it's sad that we still have that divide, you know, and that's a whole other conversation I could get into that we still have such a distinct Divide between general ed kids and special ed kids because, really, at the end of the day, they're all kids, they all have differences, they all have strengths and needs. And I live for the day when we can get beyond that distinction. But you know, the distinction is so great that the last school that I taught at, I was really not valued as an equally educated. Teacher, I had one teacher when she went to register her kids for kindergarten at a school I had worked at, and my friend was the secretary. When she said she worked there, my friend said, Oh, my friend Jenny teaches there. And she says, Oh, yeah, she's not a teacher, not really. Like, okay, but I have more credentials than you do, I have more experience, I have a different type of experience, and I work with all the kids that you can't handle. Mm. Mm, But I am definitely a fierce protector of my kids. And when I say my kids, I mean my students, because as you know, we have many of our former teachers that still still refer to us as their kids, even though we're in our fifties, but they're always your kids. And I've always been an advocate for my students. And for many years, That advocacy was celebrated, but the profession of teaching in the last probably 10 to 15 years has become more, don't ask, don't tell, don't question, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut. So where I was once celebrated for advocating for my students, I then became viewed as a troublemaker, which at that time was a very hard pill to swallow I now wear it as a badge of honor (laughs) because I I was saying the things they didn't want to hear. They just wanted us to quietly go away. And if I quietly go away, who suffers? My kids. And I am never okay with that. So that's, you know, that's what's led me to where I am now. And I started a business. I'm an independent business person, but I have started a business as a special education advocate. You know, let's just do what's right for kids and let's put adult egos aside. And at the end of the day, it there is nothing better than getting a kid to a place where there are supports and services in Place that for the first time in their life, they thrive and are successful. And starting this business, I had no idea there would be that component to it. And that's what fuels me and that's what drives me.
0: So, how does a parent know if their kid and they, of course, as a parent, need an advocate?
1: I'll be really honest with you, Lauren. I think every parent should have one. I wish we could get beyond the stigma of advocates only needing to come in when there's a problem, because I think that's how we get the bad reputation. But if you think about it, as much as the law is written that it is supposed to be a team, in reality, that is not how it works. You know, when you come in nine times out of 10, the parents are on one side of the table and the team is on the other. The parents are always outnumbered. You know, there can be 12 district employees to one or maybe two parents. And parents have such a trust in the education system. And as much as I, I feel like parents should, unfortunately, at the end of the day, as my very first principal said to me, this district is run by two departments, transportation and budget. And 30 years later, that is still so true. My very first principal lived by the saying, all decisions are made in the best interest of children. I always say that's how I was born and raised. And it was about 10 years into it, the school that I was at was trying to bring in this really fancy program that cost $10,000 a year to be a part of that to me was nothing more than really good teaching. It was nothing more than what I learned in two credential programs. But if you pay $10,000, You can put this plaque on your door that says you're certified in this program. In high school, it has some different implications, but again, I I think there's kids that get into equally good schools without that being on their diploma. So the principal had a board member come to our staff meeting, and basically, we were supposed to beg him for money for this program. But that was the day I had my bubble burst of what a school board really did and how political a school board was. And, you know, when you've had that bubble burst, you never go back from that. And instead of, yes, I'm going to give you this money because it's what's right for children and it's what's right for education. He sat there rambling about trading votes on the school board and property. And this one has a vote for this property And it all boiled down to he would give us the money if he could trade with the right person a vote to get it approved. And that was about 24 hours of utter disbelief of, wow, a school board is really not about children. That was a hard pill to swallow. That was really hard because I'm not a political person with the exception of the last four years. I hate it. I've always said You know, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I just have my opinions. My opinions are probably a lot stronger in one direction after the last four years. (laughs) But I'll tell you, even four years ago, I was trying to be cautiously optimistic. Never did I see the shitstorm we had coming. But, you know, I tried to be optimistic because I never swayed one way or the other. And to find out that education was really not about doing what was best for children. It was about politics was, that was really hard for me.
0: So I also want to go back to Benny. Yeah. Based on what you said, it sounds like he had, has autism.
1: No, Benny did not have autism. You know, to qualify for an IEP, you have to qualify under one of 13 handicapping categories I can't even remember what we qualified him under. Sadly, with that IQ, what I want to say is he was probably qualified under an intellectual disability. But how that influences me now. So one of my very first clients, the mom contacted me saying, you know, uh, her child had dyslexia and couldn't pass the foreign language requirement. And the school would not allow the child to take sign language as an alternative. And I remember thinking when the mom contacted me, well, that's a no brainer because we can do dual enrollment at a junior college. You can do that in high school. And I think that's where parents need advocates because even schools don't know that. And so we can bring a skill set to parents to educate them on what is available to them that the school can't or won't do. Why
0: wouldn't they let the kid take sign language in the first place?
1: Here's the thing, Lauren. I never got into it because once I started reviewing the records, that became the least of my worries. Gotcha. And so what happened was I started reviewing the child's records, which, you know, This child was a senior in high school. This was November of the senior year when this mom contacted me. So I start reviewing the records. And what I noticed was within the first six weeks of the freshman year of high school, this student was pulled out of a diploma bound English class and placed into what they called applied English. So. I had to have a very tough conversation with the mom because the mom had no idea that in, what, six months, her child was not going to be getting a diploma. And it had nothing to do with the second language requirement. Oh, wow. Yeah. The child had gone through four years of high school on a non-diploma bound track based on that one class. But this child was also dyslexic. So it spurred me into an avenue of learning that I had never had, which again, I regret because I'm thinking all my years in teaching, why did I not educate myself with this? A lot of it was because that was not the population that I worked with. A lot, most of the kids that I worked with were nonverbal. So dyslexia would not have entered into our realm. It also makes me mad though. I never learned about this in school. So the first book that I read was it was called advocating for dyslexia in the public schools. Lauren, I don't think I ever read my college textbooks with such veracity. We were on a camping trip and I was highlighting and sticky notes and making notes. And what's this word? I need to go look this up. I need to know more about it. What is it? Even Nate said to me, like, you're on vacation and you're doing work And I'm like, well, it's not really work. I'm just learning. To me, it wasn't work. It was just, and and it kind of has pushed me into this whole new passion of advocating for kids with dyslexia. But my biggest come away with, from reading that book is, it is an overall systematic failure in education that at the highest level at the university, teachers are not taught what it is what it looks like or how to remediate it and when you look at the statistics and i think the statistic that stood out the most to me really kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up is that one in 80 kids has autism and we hear about autism all the time you know there you see the puzzle ribbon Everywhere you go, everybody knows autism. They know what it looks like. They talk about it. There's walks for it. You know, you hear autism, autism, one in 80. But do you know how many kids are diagnosed or can statistically have dyslexia?
0: Isn't it like one in eight?
1: One in five. Oh, wow. One in five. So if you think of a kindergarten classroom Let's do one in 20 kids in a kindergarten classroom. That is 25% of that kindergarten classroom could have a reading disability that is completely ignored by our educational system.
0: Yeah, that's stunning.
1: The reading methodology that we use now does absolutely nothing to address dyslexia. So you get kids that struggle. So of course, as I'm reading this and I'm learning about this, the light bulb's going off. This is Benny to a T. And that's why Benny keeps coming back to me of like, and the hardest thing I think to myself is I knew, I knew there was something, I didn't know what, and I failed him because I wasn't given the knowledge or the tools to support him. And the other scary statistic along those lines is one in 85 prisoners incarcerated has an undiagnosed learning disability. And one of my worries about Benny, and this is why it haunts me to this day, is we call it the school to prison pipeline. Because these kids, what happens is they're made to feel like they're dumb and they're stupid. And we set them up to basically destroy their self-esteem. And one of my concerns with Benny was always, and I would tell his mom this, he was a great kid. I adored him, not a behavior problem at all, but he was easily led by kids that were doing the wrong thing. And he didn't have that filter to say, this is not right. I need to walk away. And I had Benny as a fifth grader, so I only had him for a year. And that was my biggest fear, sending him to middle school. It's like, I want him somewhere where he's got enough eyes on him to keep him safe, but also where he's pushed academically, because he made three years of growth in math in one year with me. Oh, wow. So the potential was there. So really, he is what fuels my passion for this. And as I've done more reading and done more learning, I realized This isn't new. The research for this was done 30 years ago. 1987 is when the first grant came out to study it. And yet here we are 30 years later, and we are still not changing our practices in elementary schools. And I go into meeting after meeting, and I'm hearing the same old goals that are completely contradictory to these kids' needs. And I can't fault the school or the teacher because They're only as good as what they're taught and what they're supported with. So, you know, and I start thinking back and I'll tell you, every time I go to a training and learn more about dyslexia and who it could affect and who it could impact, I think of another student that I knew had more potential than what I could get out of them. And it was because I didn't have the right tools or approaches to teach that child.
0: I want to go back to what you said about that you really can't fault the teacher or the school because knowing that, knowing that you just said that, can you give yourself a break that you did not fail Benny, but that the system did?
1: I, you know, the rational part of me knows that, and, you know, and, and I struggle with that because yes, I, I know it wasn't my fault, but do I wish I could go back and do it all over again? Absolutely. But yeah, I do grant myself grace, but I'll tell you, I also use it to to motivate me to work harder and to spread the message. And again, there's that serendipitous piece coming in is that, you know, when I started on this path as an advocate, I thought I was just going to be working with families and kids to get them what they need. And it has opened so many doors and so many pathways for me. And one of the things I had, you know, I have this little side business with Arbonne and through one of my teammates, she introduced me to a young lady who is in a university here who, oh, okay, here we go. Another, I forgot about this. Another connection. She's a Mount Carmel grad, much, much younger than us. And I didn't even know that when we were first introduced. My friend introduced us because this young lady is blind and she is a phenomenal self-advocate. I learned so much from her every day. You guys really should follow her on Instagram. Even her Instagram post is, you know, she's so bright, but she has such a wicked sense of humor that the first time I met her, we met for coffee and I offered to drive her back to her dorm. And as I'm driving her to her dorm, there's a sign outside that says blind person in area. So I'm thinking to myself, Has that always been there or did they put it up for her? And before I could even say anything, she said, you see that sign over there? They put that up for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that is her Instagram handle, blind person in area. And she is a phenomenal self-advocate. And she spoke at the women's March in January and her speech just really struck me on so many levels and what really clicked for me was something I was seeing in my business in that I was starting to see this trend of a lot of it in the middle school ages where you get kids that they don't want to be pulled out for their services, but the parent knows they need the services, but they don't want to torture their child by you know, putting the spotlight on them, making them be pulled out. And it becomes this frustrating little dance for everybody of trying to get the kid the support they need, but not make them stand out because they don't want to be teased by their kids. And listening to Tatum speak at the Women's March, I thought, you know what, that's what I need to do. And so before covid I had this vision that, that Tatum and I were talking about. And it's funny because in talking to her, it has spurred her in some other avenues as well. But I really want to start some kind of a program to teach kids to accept their disability, because the reality is this is a lifelong thing. It doesn't go away. You know, even with dyslexia, You may learn enough strategies to overcome it to where you don't need an IEP and that direct instruction, but you're always going to struggle with it. You're always going to have to have strategies and techniques to help because one of the things kids with dyslexia struggle with is short-term memory. So they're always going to have to have little tricks to help them in life, or you have kids with ADHD that, you know, they're going to be entitled. Because even once you get out of school and you're no longer afforded that protection of an IEP, you still have this law called Americans with Disabilities. So once you have that disability, for the rest of your life, you are entitled by law to supports and accommodations. You know, so that's my thing now is really teaching kids to be comfortable and accept their disability and empower them to speak out for it.
0: I love that you're helping these kids be more resilient and empowered and resiliency has come up on the podcast before, and it's got to be one of the hardest things to teach and imbue into you know a kid but especially a kid who's afraid to look different than everybody else so you have your work cut out for you but i think it's amazing what you're what you're launching into you know how you said every parent should have an advocate assuming that they don't in their town or they can't afford a service of an advocate is there like a book or something online that you can recommend to people for like how to advocate for your own kids?
1: So for parents, there's two, I can put the links for these. Yeah. There's, there's two places you can go that are just phenomenal sources of information. One of them is COPA and that's the council of parent advocates and attorneys. And I believe parents can join that for free but it's a great place when you've got a problem or a concern that you can get your question answered. It's also a great place to find an advocate. The other great one is called Rights Law and that is run by an attorney and he does a lot of parent trainings. He has books that he sells that become, you know, a bible for parents. But again, I always recommend a parent have an advocate there. Just for a second set of eyes and ears, you know, and it's, it is a financial investment, but you know, we all invest in our children and this is really investing in your child's future.
0: Yeah. If you look at it from a macro level, all these kids may be getting help individually to rail against the system, but who's fixing the system?
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's one of the things that one of the things I'm leaning towards right now is how do we evoke that change at a higher level? Because I only evoke that change individually for each individual kid. It's leveling the playing field. And I just, you know, I live for this dream of the day where we just level the playing field for everybody. This passion for dyslexia, again, how it comes back to our Mount Carmel I mean I know you talked to Factor about it and he and I have had a lot of conversations on his own dyslexia and how it's impacted him you know which just spurs me even more to say look here's somebody who did it it wasn't easy he struggled but you know I think back to to people like Mr Factor or Gene other people that even oh my god lord help me even mentioning this name I honest to God think, Lauren, the current leader of our country might have dyslexia. And that gives me just an ounce of empathy for him, just an ounce, because then I see the other atrocious things he does and says that negates any ounce of sympathy I have for him. But I was listening to his niece on her book tour, and I was listening to John Bolton on his book tour, and they were all talking about how he doesn't read anything for himself and he deflects. And that's what a lot of our kiddos with dyslexia do. They learn their their mental capacity is still very much intact. These are kids of normal intelligence. They just need to be taught reading in a different way. And there are some people that want to get to a point where dyslexia is not viewed as a disability, but just needing a different approach to instruction and you know, I was listening to them talk about how he deflects and it really made me see some of the atrocious behavior in a different light that his defensiveness and his way of des- deflecting. And then when you hear about the tyrant of a father that he had that would have never accepted a child with a learning disability, I don't know, makes you wonder, really makes you wonder.
0: Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, we all have something and I think he had a lot of problems and the problem is that uh, he's spewing his problems onto the rest of the world.
1: Right, right. It doesn't excuse it. And just because you have a learning disability doesn't give you an excuse to be an awful atrocious person. And that's a whole other, but you know, one of my frustrations with the system now is, you know, the, the whole intent of special ed law originally was... Kids were not being allowed in school at all. And the original intent of the law was access to an education like everybody else. As it has played out, what it came to, and again, that pendulum is starting to shift, but what it came to was special education became synonymous with an alternate placement. And special education is not a placement It is a service. It is a support and accommodations. It is not a place. And I think for many years, it became equated with a place. But, you know, it has all led me to where I am now. You know, sometimes you have to go through hell and back to see your path. Now, when I encounter those kids, I can speak up and I can affect the change in a different way.
0: So, you know, you just said about you have to go through hell and back to get to this path. So to maybe recap and do an overview, now that you look back on all this stuff, because I know that you've been thinking about it to prep for this, how much are you able to see happening at the time versus, unfortunately, only seeing it in retrospect?
1: Oh, I don't think I saw any of it in the time. You know, it's like being in the center of the hurricane and everything's swirling around you, and you're just struggling to stay afloat. You know, you're treading water as fast as you can. You know, I had 15 years of what I consider a very respectable career. I led workshops. You know, I always got great support, great feedback from parents, from families, from colleagues. And then I had somebody who was determined to take me down. You know, I, and here's the irony, Lauren. My very first job before I started teaching with the school district, I taught, I taught preschool for the YMCA. Very first time I ever got a job evaluation, and the very first evaluation I got, my director said, "Jenny needs to be more confident in her decision making," which was like, "Oh wow, okay, that was like, that was a little hard pill to swallow." Like. I didn't realize me asking her questions for clarification was a negative thing, but okay, I'll try and be more confident. Well, you know, when you get a comment like that, it sticks with you. Like, okay, I won't do that again. I'll I'll look confident and be confident in my choices. And so fast forward 15 years into my career, and I didn't realize it at first. It took me a while to figure out. I ended up working for a principal who, oh, it was like. It was like being in middle school. She had her favorites and I'd never worked for anybody like this before. She definitely had her pets and her favorites. And you were either a pet and a favorite or you were on the shit list. And somehow I ended up on that shit list and I didn't know how. And I'm like, what did I ever do to make her not like me? And it was interesting. And I started thinking of the teachers that she did like and that were her pets. And honestly, they were the ones that kind of bugged me because they always act so helpless. And I'm like, you know, you've got a master's degree. You're not stupid. Like, stop acting so helpless. And I realized, you know, those were the ones that she clinched onto because I think it made her feel important. And the reality of it was because she had so little actual experience teaching herself. And that finally came full circle with a book that I read a few years ago by somebody who is a big education advocate. She was a former assistant secretary of education, college professor, Diane Ravitch. And she wrote a book called The Life and Death of the American School System. And I think the one quote that really stuck with me is, how can they be evaluating good instruction when they haven't done it long enough themselves? And that was my little sing from the mountaintop moment. Like, okay, it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me being difficult. It was, I'm confident. I know what I'm doing. But I realized apparently that confidence was threatening to somebody else. And I didn't see that. I had no idea that, you know, because once I had been criticized for it, now I'm criticized for being overly competent. Like I can't win, you know? And the funny thing is the very last year that I taught when I got my evaluation from that principal, which again was a gut punch at the time. And now, now I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. She said, Jenny is very knowledgeable, but sometimes the sharing of her knowledge comes across as critical. And you know, that criticism was a little hard to hear at the moment. But once I swallowed my pride, I thought, you know what, if she felt critical, because I stood up for the needs of a child, I will never apologize for that. And you can think what you want about me. But at the end of that day, I'm going to stand up for what's best for that kid.
0: Well, good for you. I thank you for your time and your passion. And all I can say is we have a teacher going to the White House. So hopefully that will help.
1: Oh, I can't even... Well, you know, okay, here again, that serendipitous moment, Lauren. So I was at Mr. Factor's house when the announcement was made that Biden won. So of all places to be. Yeah. And when he gave his speech, so I got to watch it sitting there. So of course... There was already that emotion and being able to watch it with him, I think even had more impact than if I had watched it with my own family and my own kids. There was something about being there with Mr. Factor watching that moment just made sense. That's when that moment hit me that we could not ask for a better time for the field of education. I mean, talk about going from one extreme to the next. I mean, yeah. we have gone from Cruella Deville, because I'll tell you at the beginning of the quarantine, for us special advocates, special ed advocates and attorneys, that was a huge, huge, huge concern of ours that Betsy DeVos had the power to completely eliminate all the rights for our students that we have fought so hard over 40 years to get for our kids and that was terrifying it was very terrifying situation to be in and to know that we now have somebody at the highest level that gets it you know now is the time to start the campaign to shift the reading education for upcoming teachers and to change it for districts and to change conversation so could not be more excited for the field of education right now
0: that's awesome I uh, it's hard to end on a good note especially considering what everything you just covered and I'm not trying to belittle it but I'm trying to say there is a light possibly and that we will hold on to that
1: oh you know what I feel like for the first time in four years, I can breathe. I don't have to be afraid yeah. for the first time in a long time. I feel like there is hope again. Right.
0: Well, you know, in hopefully less than four years, we can do this again and then have a recap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you again, Miss Jenny. Thank you. Okay. viewers. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you really enjoyed it. There's of course a lot of information in the show notes and how you can get a hold of Jenny If you'd like to talk to her about getting an advocate for your child, as always, my sponsor is BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P.com, BetterHelp.com, so that you can take charge of your mental health and emotional health needs. So please go to my website and follow the link to get your special discount on counseling through BetterHelp.com. My website is https://revelrevel.life. However, if you want the direct link for the Better Help discount, it's https://betterhelp.com/revelrevel. Again, all this is on the website and should be clickable in any of your podcast apps except Apple. They don't like links. And finally, I need to say that if you know anybody or you yourself are thinking about being on this podcast, then please do what Jenny did and think long and hard about how your life has woven and how things have happened. She did a lot of great thought work before her episode to think about where she's come and how far she's come and where she's going. And it It's all just a beautiful weaving tapestry of interesting stories that I hope you'll share. Please share this episode or any other episode you have a fondness for online. Use that social network for good. And please subscribe. It really does help. Thanks all. Talk to you soon and happy February.